know. And when I was thinking about the mixed response, I was thinking maybe we find that too. When we talk about our faith or that we go to church or that, that we love Jesus, maybe we get like a really mixed response. Some people are like, whoa, that sounds cool. Like, what do you mean Jesus heals today? And maybe some people are like, oh, really? Like, that's weird. That's confusing. And maybe some people are actually really annoyed that you could believe in something that you can't see that's like from thousands of years ago. I don't know. But in this crowd, there was all those feelings. There were people that were like, whoa, did you, did you see what he did? He just healed that guy. Did you hear what he said? That's crazy. That's life-changing. And then there were people that were like, well, he does seem pretty cool, but I don't know because he's from that rubbish town called Nazareth and there's no way that God's going to use someone from such a weird and rubbish place, such an ordinary person. No way is that the Messiah. Like, oh, but, but maybe, look what he's doing. So there's a confusion about him. There's like, hmm. And then there are other people that are furious. <laughs> How dare he talk in the way that he talks? How dare he suggest that maybe he is the Messiah. How dare he? And do you know who was most furious at Jesus' talking and his moving and his miracles? It was the religious teachers. The people that knew all about the prophecies of the Messiah couldn't see it. And they were furious. And in chapter 7, he talks about himself being like water that people will drink. And that comes from Isaiah. And God says that about himself. And so the fact that Jesus dares to say something about himself that God says, whoa, the Pharisees are mad. They are so angry with Jesus. And they're also angry because everyone is following him. He's popular. He's dynamic. People are interested. And they probably feel a little bit insecure. This guy is kind of challenging their authority. And there's a bit of a power play for them, I think, as well. But they are angry. And so when we head into chapter 8, there's, there's a very furious group of men. And actually, just before they send their guards to arrest Jesus for, for, for saying, basically, that he is God. And they send their guards to arrest him. And when the guards come back empty-handed, they say, like, he's just amazing. We've never heard anyone speak like he does. They couldn't get him. He's too popular. Can you imagine how angry they were? Yeah? And then it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Round one, Jesus wins. And the Pharisees are not happy. And they want to claim round two. They want to beat Jesus in the ring. In fact, they don't want him in the ring. They want him gone. They don't want him having this big following. They don't want him doing what he's doing. They want Jesus out the picture. So as night falls, at the end of chapter seven, we head into chapter eight, and Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. That probably means he went to spend time with the Father. He went to be with the one who knows him best. He went to rest in the presence of God, probably just to sit there and remember his calling, sit there and enjoy time with his dad, sit there and ready himself because he knew what was coming. He knew what was going to come the next day. He knew the Pharisees were frustrated. He knew they were coming for him. So he has gone to the Mount of Olives to rest in the presence of God. And I wonder what the Pharisees did. This is my idea of what they may have been doing that night. I think they were probably plotting. 
They were like, if we want to win round two, then we need to bring the big guns. We want to bring the smack down because we cannot have this guy doing what he's doing. So they're figuring out, how can we trap Jesus? How can we get him to say something or do something that either ends in him being arrested or discredited, that the crowd no longer want to follow him, they don't believe in him? So they're plotting and planning, and I wonder what kind of things they came up with, like how could they get Jesus? But they ultimately come up with this plan. They come up with a plan to catch somebody in the act of adultery, bring her to Jesus, and see what he's going to do about it. And they think there's only two options for Jesus to respond with, and both those options will mean that he's either arrested or he's discredited. So we don't really know anything about this poor woman, do we? But what we can guess is that she's just part of a trap. Because for the, for the men to miraculously find a woman in the act, because the law said you had to actually be doing it in order to be taken and condemned. So she's physically having sex and they suddenly find her at the perfect moment and drag her out of that place. So even that, doesn't that seem a bit odd to you? Does that sound like maybe somebody else is being trapped? I don't know. We don't know when they find her. Maybe it was that earlier that morning. Maybe it was the night before. But this poor lady is taken from that place, and she's dragged away, and she doesn't really know what is going to happen. So verse 2, Jesus heads back to the temple, and he begins to teach. And the crowd begins to gather. And the Pharisees would have wanted that crowd, wouldn't they? Because they want as many people to see Jesus humiliated as possible. So the crowd's gathering as Jesus is teaching. It's not just the Jewish crowd in there. There would have been Roman guards just checking that everything was keeping peaceful. Nothing was kind of riotous and happening that shouldn't have been. So not only is Jesus and the Pharisees aware that he's got a Jewish audience, he's got a Roman audience as well. And that's quite important to the Pharisees. So he begins to teach in the temple. And then this lady is dragged in. I wonder what it felt like for her to be pulled out of a situation and to be probably naked and forced to walk through the streets. And I wonder if it began to dawn on her where she was headed. Maybe it was a vaguely familiar road and she knew she was being taken to the temple. She's being taken to the place where God's presence was to be judged, to be condemned to death was the Old Testament rule. That if you were caught in the act of adultery, you could be stoned to death. So this lady is dragged naked, vulnerable, frightened, and then she's forced into the center of the crowd in the temple. Her and Jesus right in the center. Interestingly, as an aside, the law actually says that both the man and the woman involved in the act of adultery are supposed to be brought and condemned, but it's just the woman. Pharisees aren't really that bothered about the law, are they? They're more worried about their position and trapping Jesus than they care for the law. So Jesus looks up, I guess, and the Pharisees say to him, teacher, this woman, who doesn't have a name according to them, was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Woman, What do you say? They're like, Jesus, how are you going to interpret this law? What are you going to do with this? They're trying to put him in a very uncomfortable position. They want to shame Jesus in the same way that they've shamed this lady. 
and they think he's only got two options. The first option is that he upholds the Jewish law. And he's like, yeah, she deserves to be stoned. Let's condemn her. But in doing that, he would be arrested, likely, by the Romans because the Jewish people couldn't make decisions like that. They couldn't decide that someone was going to die and because they were occupied by the Romans. Only the Romans could say, that person can be put to death. So if Jesus incites almost like a riot by saying, yeah, great, let's stone her, he would have been arrested. So that's a great option for the Pharisees because he's out the way. Option two is that he says, yeah, no, I don't agree with that. That's an old school thing. Let's leave that. And like then it shows that he isn't faithful to scripture. Maybe it suggests he doesn't know enough of the law. But basically they think that will discredit him in front of his crowd. If he isn't able to understand or know the law, then the, the, the Pharisees think, yeah, he's over. Slowly his following will just diminish and his popularity will go. So they are so thrilled. Can you imagine the joy of their faces and thinking, we've got him, ha, we've got him. And Jesus just sits down. <laughs> doesn't even answer the question. He just sits down and starts doodling in the dust. And the Pharisees must have been furious because <laughs> they're so pleased with themselves at this brilliant plan that they've had. And Jesus just sits down and starts writing in the dust. I am, I, I've tried to read around this, this passage and learn lots from lots of experts. And loads of them have got all these amazing ideas of what he wrote in the sand. You know, they're like, people write things like, I'm, I'm almost convinced that he wrote X, Y, Z. And I'm like, how can you possibly convince? Like, how do you know? It very clearly just says he's like writing in the sand. It doesn't say anything. And I have no idea what he wrote. I would love to know. I feel like probably everyone's going to ask him in heaven, like, what did you actually write? And I hope he kind of says, I was just drawing or something, you know. But he's just, he's just writing in the sand. And then they're like persistent. They're like, no, no, no. You're not getting out of this, Jesus. You're not, you're not just going to sit there and write stuff. We've made a plan and you need to answer the question. What do we do with this woman? This woman, this woman who stood here naked, vulnerable next to you, what do we do with her? And Jesus stands up and he just says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone. Wonder how long it took for that to settle in. You know, like how long did it take for them to kind of hear what he just said? How long until they realized, what, there were three options? <laughs> we thought there were only two. How have you managed to find a third? How have you managed to say something? Wait a second. Our hearts are being dragged in to the temple now. Our own sin is suddenly being looked at. Wait, what? That was not supposed to happen. She's the sinner. And suddenly Jesus turns it over and he's like, yeah, if you have no sin in your heart, go ahead, condemn this lady. And obviously they can't. And Jesus bends back down and carries on doodling in the dirt. And um, in, in my reading this week, I found out there would be a huge shame on a Jewish person to say they're without sin. Like to say to, about yourself that you have not sinned and never sinned would be like a hugely shameful thing to say. I guess it means you'd be saying you're like God and they're not. And so the Pharisees cannot claim to be without sin, partly because they weren't, but also because there would be a huge shame in anyone trying to pretend that. What do you think the lady's doing whilst this is happening? How do you think she's feeling? She, maybe they've got stones in their hand and she's just been watching them, just looking at the stone all the way through the interaction. She thinks she, maybe she knows who Jesus is, maybe she doesn't. She's been dragged in front of this teacher 
and she's waiting. Is he, what's, is he going to condemn me? I wonder what she's thinking. And then it says the Pharisees leave oldest to youngest, and that's about wisdom. So the oldest Pharisee would have been the most wise in their eyes. So you can imagine Jesus throws out this statement, takes a minute for it to settle, and they all just look. It's like, we all look at John. Not that you're the oldest, but you're wise. We all look. Like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Maybe he just drops the stone, turns around, walks out. Maybe they haven't got the stones, and he just walks out. And they look at the next oldest. Have you got a good answer? No walks out until everybody has left. And Jesus looks up, <laughs> looks at this lady and says, where are they? Where are your accusers? Did they not condemn you? And the lady's like, no, there's no one. Maybe she was thinking, but there's you. I don't know, she doesn't say that. She says, there's no one. I wonder if she knew that she stood in the presence of the only one that could have thrown a stone. But instead, he was preparing to have every throne, stone at him, thrown at himself. He knew that everything she may have deserved would be thrown on him, and he'd bear it. I wonder if she knew that. Anyway, so Jesus sends her off without condemnation, but he does call her to a life worthy of the call he has for her, a life without sin, a life following his best for her. Isn't that such a good story? Yeah, it is. You can smile if you want. So I love this passage. I, I can never pick favorites in anything. Phoebe, my seven, six-year-old, is always like, Mommy, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite animal? And I'm like, ah, I can't pick favorites. Um, but you know, the moments where Jesus meets people in the Bible have got to be up there in my favorites, don't they? Because they just reveal so much about him. You know, like when you see his interactions with the woman at the well, and he's just so incredible. And you're like, whoa, this is Jesus. Or you see him heal blind Bartimaeus, and you're like, whoa, that's a whole other part of you that I didn't know until I saw the way that you were with that person. This is another one of those moments, isn't it? The way he is in this moment, not only like his crazy wisdom, like dealing with the crowd, dealing with the Pharisees. It's like, whoa, I need some of that wisdom. But also his heart towards this lady just reveals so much of him. And I wonder if it makes you reflect on your moment of encounter with Jesus or the moments that you encounter him. Does it take you back to a moment where you first realized how much he loved you? It takes me there. <laughs> takes me back to the moment where I met Jesus and the person I thought he was. I thought that this person God or this person Jesus was only interested in sin and therefore I wasn't massively keen. If he existed, didn't sound like a fun guy to be around. Someone that was more interested in all my mess, all the stuff I'd mucked up, all my sin was what he cared about. And then I met him and I was so surprised because I don't remember him really talking about my sin. In that moment where I first met Jesus, it felt like all he wanted me to know was that he loved me. And later on, he did convict me. Later on, he did call me to live a different way to how I'd been living. But initially, he just wanted me to know how much he loved me. I don't know if that's the story for you guys. I hope it is. Or I don't know if maybe you don't even know him yet. 
and you think he's just really judgy and sin-focused, let me tell you, he's really lovey, love-focused. And, um, yeah, and I also wonder for people in here tonight, if there's like, you know that Jesus surprised you when you met him, like you thought he was one way and then you found out that he's incredible. And you have people in your life that you would like to be really surprised by Jesus too. They were like, I, I wish that I could find a way to introduce him to my friends, to my family, to my colleagues, to whoever. And they'd be really surprised if they knew him. And, and you just need a bit of courage maybe to figure out how do I explain this surprising Jesus. And later on we could pray for that because God wants to be surprising people. He wants to surprise them with how great he is. So there's this most beautiful exchange, isn't there, in this passage. There's just this most incredible moment between Jesus and the woman. They're both in the center of the crowd. All eyes are on both of them. One has been caught in the very act of her sin, and it's been made public. And she's been taken into public to be judged and condemned. And then there's Jesus, the only person in the room who can answer his statement, those who are without sin, is him. And the two of them are there in the center of the crowd. This woman, whose sin is her only defining feature to the Pharisees, they don't care about her at all. They're not interested in her. She's not, he doesn't even feel like she's seen as human. She's just a pawn in their plan and their game. And she's just brought in to the center. And I just think Jesus, again, in this moment, shows what his kingdom is like. He's not okay with that. He's not okay with women being treated as second class or rubbish or pawns in people's games. In fact, he's not okay with anybody being like that. Where the value system of the day basically said women had no value, Jesus says different. His kingdom says different. Jesus' treatment of her doesn't discard the law. He doesn't say that what she's done was fine. It doesn't throw it out. But it reminds us that we were never intended to be the judges. You know, that's part of the fall. That's part of our fallen humanity because we are not capable of judging. And yet the only person who is able to judge her takes on the judgment and he receives it himself. And he knows that he'll set her free through him taking it on. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? And it points us to the cross. And Jesus sits down. He sits down next to her, which is actually really profound. Because in sitting down, he becomes the lowest person in the room. He doesn't allow her to be shamed and on her own. Because he sits down at her feet. He sits down next to her and he humbles himself. And he bridges the gap. He takes on her judgment that she would be free. And he doesn't allow the consequence of her sin to be death, knowing instead that he would die. And it wouldn't be long before Jesus hangs naked on a cross. This woman is dragged into the center of the crowd naked, publicly humiliated, and it won't be long until Jesus Christ himself is on a cross naked and humiliated, bearing every bit of shame that the Pharisees condemn that woman to, but also they carry in their own hearts when they walk away knowing they can't claim to be without sin. He did that for them and he does that for us. We never hear the woman's response to Jesus. 
We never know really what happens when he says to her, go and sin no more. I wonder if her life was completely transformed. I wonder if she recognized him as the Messiah, as her savior. We don't know. We don't know anything about her. We know that her life was changed that day, but we don't know what she does with it. But I wonder if tonight God's not interested in her response. He's more interested in your response to what he's doing. I want to tell you a story. I'm sorry if you've heard it before. I don't think that you have, but you might have. And um, I, um, I have uh, this crazy friend called Ruth, who um, hopefully one day you'll meet. She lives in California, and she's wild. And um, we went to Bosnia together. She was on a mission trip. I don't actually have a clue how she got connected with this Bosnian church. But anyway, she was like, needed a friend. So off we went to Bosnia. And uh, <laughs> we were, she was doing like healing meetings. And I was just feeling completely ill-equipped <laughs> small. Anyway, but I was there, supposed to be her prayer team. And uh, so we were in front of this Bosnian church. And uh, I don't speak Bosnian, sadly. Um, and she was speaking with like an interpreter and she was just talking about the love of God. And, and then she just invited people up to come and be prayed for. And um, anyway, and a few people came up and then I sort of turned around and this lady shuffled in from the back. And as she came forward, people in the crowd were like, and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go this way. I don't want to pray. What does that mean? Anyway, obviously, she comes straight to me. And uh, I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know. Like, she's talking to me. I'm like, I don't know what she's been talking about. And everyone's... Um, and I was thinking, oh, God, I am so unqualified. What am I doing? Anyway, then God says to me, follow my spirit, he says, I just want you to sing love over her. Now, probably Lauren, who sat next to me tonight, is aware that I can't sing. <laughs> So the Lord saying to me, sing love over her, felt terrifying. But I was like, okay, I've got nothing else. And maybe she'll just think English people sing like this and it'll be okay. So I just sing like love over her. And I'm just singing love. He loves you. You're loved. Love. Do I keep going, God? Yeah. Love. He loves you. He really, really loves you. Love. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And honestly, something shifts in her. And I don't know what, because I don't know what she's talking about. But it was like the love of God began to heal her soul. And I can't tell you why it was broken. I can't tell you what broke it. But I can tell you what began to heal it. And it was the love of God. And I honestly can't describe how different she looked. And it was nothing to do with me. But she made space. And we just prayed that the love of God would transform her. And I believe that it did. So I wonder how we respond, because in that moment that Jesus encounters the lady caught in adultery, ultimately, it's this amazing act of love, isn't it? Where he takes on what she deserves because he loves her. So how do we respond? Maybe we associate with the woman, you know? Like maybe we like feel some kind of connection to her. Maybe we feel far from God, you know? We feel like there's a part of our life that we keep hidden because... We're ashamed of it. We're screwing up. We're doing something wrong. And we don't really know what to do about it. Or maybe there's just a whole bunch of shame from past stuff. We just never feel quite good enough. We're not quite as good as that lovely holy person over there. Not quite good enough. There's a level of shame. Maybe there's a whole bunch of lies that you consistently believe about who you are. And maybe you thought that voice, that voice of condemnation, was God's voice. Maybe you thought that he was speaking about you as if it's only your sin that's important to him. Maybe the voice of condemnation you thought was God's voice. But tonight, 
Maybe he's trying to show you that is not his voice. God's voice doesn't lock you up, sets you free. And, um, but, but Jesus does convict us, you know? Like all of us have sin in our lives. All of us have stuff that we need to deal with and we need to shift. And he isn't afraid to convict us. But what I've learned with God is that love and conviction create this invitation towards more. They invite us to be more like Jesus, to partner with him and to follow him into the fullness of life. But condemnation shuts us down and keeps us far away from that. So tonight, if you think the voice that's been condemning you is God, it's not. But he will convict you. But when he convicts you, he invites you to more. And that is the best thing. So maybe you feel like the woman. Maybe you feel a heavy weight of shame. And I really believe that God's love will lift that if you let it. Or maybe you feel like maybe there's a bit of a Pharisee in you. There's a bit of a Pharisee probably in all of us, you know? Maybe there's like people you think are too far outside God's like remit to touch. You know, like they, their life really isn't great. I'm not sure God's going to go there. I'm not sure God could use them. And we all, sadly, probably sometimes feel a bit like a Pharisee, that we make decisions almost on behalf of God and what he's like that isn't the thing that he's doing. And maybe there's a repentance of our judgment. Maybe it's fear. I think the Pharisees were afraid of Jesus, and I think that's partly why they were so angry with him. And sometimes we're afraid of the world. We're afraid of what's happening, and we judge it, and we push it away. But God is asking you, to allow his love to permeate the fear, remove the judgment that you would be able to lean into the world and show people what he's really like. And thirdly, (laughs) maybe you just want more of that transformational love. Maybe you can imagine how that woman felt when Jesus looked at her and said, I neither condemn you and sent her away in freedom. Maybe you're like, I need some of that. I just want to feel the love of my savior who hung naked on a cross, publicly humiliated for me and I need to feel that love. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th, maybe the 100th, it doesn't run out. You can have as much of it as you want, I think. I think you can. So because of his great love, this woman was changed. Because of his great love, even when we were dead in our sin, by grace, we receive what we don't deserve and we're saved. Isn't that good news? You clickers can click if you want to. Thank you very much. So the Lord is here tonight, right? He was there with that lady in her shame, in her brokenness, and he's here. So I wonder what you'd like him to do for you. I wonder if you want to be transformed by him. I was thinking when I was spending time writing this talk and thinking, it's kind of pointless if it doesn't mean anything tomorrow, isn't it? Like, it's great to know stuff. It's really helpful. I love it when I learn more about Jesus and it opens my eyes. But if it doesn't draw me close to him, I don't know. Is there much point in me doing it? (laughs) And I think he longs to do something in all of us. I think he longs to meet with you. He wants to renew you with his love. He wants to remove the voice of condemnation. He wants to put on your heart people that he wants to surprise by his love. So let's just stand up if you want to.
And let's just take a minute and I just kind of want you to picture the scene. I want you just to picture Jesus there taking the penalty on himself, putting himself in the way. And just picture the, the moment in a way that he does that for you, that he stood in the gap, that he received what you deserved because of his great love. Just allow that love to touch your heart. Jesus, I thank you for your great love. A love that we're like barely able to scratch the surface of because it's so enormous and huge and vast and kind and compassionate and surprising and powerful and strong. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would be renewed by your love. We'd be surprised by your love. We'd be transformed by it. I pray that tomorrow when we wake up, we'd be thinking about what happened in our hearts when we engaged with your love last night. It would transform us, it would change us.